One, two, three. <laughs> In Awana, that's how they get people's attention. They count. And by the time they get to five, everybody's supposed to be paying attention. When my daughter became a nanny, she looked the kids right in the eye and she said, I'm only going to count to one. <laughs> That's not fair. The other nannies all count to three or four or five, whatever it is. I don't care. There are a lot of ways to get people's attention. You can... You can whistle loudly if you can do it. There we go. You can bang the gavel. You can say, could I have your attention, please? Could I have your attention, please? You say, Pastor Dave, that's the worst introduction to sermon I've ever heard. In John chapter 1, God said, could I have your attention, please? And he did it through a man. Follow as we read John chapter 1 verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the first five verses of this chapter that we looked at last week, God begins to tell us about Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 6, he very clearly takes a little turn, and he says, Now there was a man sent from God. It's almost as though God wants to make very clear that we understand there are two different people here. This is God the Son. Now this is a man named John. There was a man sent from John. And in this divine play, John is the opening act and Jesus is the main act. John is called a messenger from God. The word for sent is the same word where later we get the word apostle. And it says that he was sent from God, and it literally reads something like this. He was sent from right alongside of God. There's a couple different ways that could have been said, but the way that it's put here is meant to communicate to us this man was special, and his mission was special. He is the forerunner of Christ. Turn with me, to turn back to Luke, the book right before John here, to the first chapter of Luke. In God's divine wisdom, he did not give us all of the truth about most topics in one single place in the scripture. And, and this character, John, is one of those parts of the truth that is revealed to us in several books. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. 
of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and his name was, her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child. I'm not going to take a lot of time there, but it's significant the way that's written and what God said to us because in the Old Testament era, and this is still in the Old Testament time, one of the signs of being a faithful follower of God was that you would be fruitful in childbearing. And so God very specifically tells us here, now these people were both righteous. And so the reason that they did not have a child was not because of sin. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. The priests of God in the Old Testament era served in a what we would call a, a rotation. They weren't there at the temple all the time. They had a farm and a house and a life. And then uh, every, every so often they would come and serve in the temple when it was their turn. And then when they came to serve, they would cast lots and whatever, however it came up, said, okay, you're burning incense today and, and you're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this. And they would, they would parcel out the responsibilities. So when it came his turn to burn incense, verse 9, he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. What prayer is that? And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. He'd been praying for a son. Your prayer has been heard, and his name will be John. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Not necessarily in the sight of man, but he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This was a very, going to be a very unique man with a unique mission. He was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Wouldn't you like that to be true of your children? Verse 16, And he will turn away... And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him. The him is Jesus. He will go before him or ahead of him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's John. That's the same guy that we read about in John 1, verse 6. What, let's read his mission again, verse 17. He will go before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared 
for the Lord or for Jesus. He's getting things ready. That's his job. One of the terms that we use of John is we call him the forerunner. The forerunner. Turn back a little bit farther to Mark now, chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We read about his ministry. There we read about his birth and the prediction of what his life would be like. Here we actually read about his ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, if you have been really paying attention in church, we studied that passage of Scripture. It's from what book? Malachi. That's right. It's in Malachi that this is written that God, ahead of Jesus, would send a messenger who would prepare the way for Jesus, and that messenger would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what would he cry? Prepare the way of the Lord! The Lord is coming! Can I get your attention, please? That was his job. Verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Let's read that again. Then all the land of Judea... And those from Jerusalem, so that would be the southern part of Israel, if you will, went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Have you ever read that real slow? (laughs) Everybody in the whole area went out and said, Hey, I want to be ready for the coming of the Lord. He was basically preaching to them, Look, confess your sins under the Old Testament system in which they were still offering sacrifices, but there were sins that they had not made right with God. They said, confess your sins and get ready, for the Lord is coming. They all said, yeah, we want to be ready for the Lord. So they all went out to him and were baptized in the Jordan River. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair. Now, you can go to the men's store and buy a camel hair jacket, but it's not camel hair. (laughs) And it's not anything like what John was wearing. (laughs) John was wearing the skin of a camel. Okay? And that's, you know, what's interesting is the camel hair sport coat you buy is really smooth and soft and cuddly. And camel hair isn't. He was wearing camel's hair with a leather belt around the waist. And he ate locust and wild honey And he didn't drink any wine. And we would presume from that that he was under the vow of a Nazarite, which in the Old Testament, and he had long hair. He was a long-haired, long-bearded, wild man. He's my hero. Yeah. I guess he wasn't bald. He ate locust and wild honey. Oh, I'm not into that. Verse 7, and he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. 
One of the lowest jobs in the day was to take people's sandals off and wash their feet. And people had servants in their house who did those kind of things for them. It was a low job. And John, this great man of God, filled with the Spirit from the womb, preaching and baptizing all of Israel, he says, I'm not worthy to take his shoes off. Verse 8, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, I don't have time to get into it here, but here's the deal, folks. Jesus was not a sinner, and he was not baptized under John's baptism. What was the baptism of Jesus? I believe, if you go back to the Old Testament, that the priests, before they offered their sacrifices, had to have a ritual washing. It was not because they were physically dirty. It was because God wanted to teach them, you are not prepared and righteous enough to go into my temple and serve me. Wash off your sin. It was a picture of the real washing of sin that we go through when we accept Christ as our Savior. The scripture talks about that. It uses the term, the washing of regeneration. Okay? Later, in fact, uh, is it in this text or another one? It's in another text when John says, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, I must fulfill all righteousness. Which means Jesus knew he was going to offer a sacrifice. And so he said, I have to go through the ritual washing of a priest. Verse 10 of Mark 1. After he was baptized, immediately coming up from the water... He saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In God's wisdom, he decided that Jesus would not show up on his own. Turn with me back to John chapter 1. In God's wisdom, he decided that Jesus would not show up on his own by himself and start healing and preaching. He decided and prophesied, excuse me, he decided and prophesied in the Old Testament about the ministry of preparation that John would conduct. And so we come back now to John chapter 1. Verse 6, and we read that again, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And you have a little snapshot from the scripture we read about his ministry. His ministry is said here in verse 6 or verse 7 to be this. This man came for or to be a witness, to to bear witness of the light that all through him, through the light, might believe. In the Gospel of John, there are seven witnesses that several authors that I read observed throughout the Gospel of John. Seven witnesses to Christ. The ministry of John the Baptist is enabling faith in Christ, and all of these witnesses point to that, including John. He was one of those seven. Christ witness of himself. The Father witnessed of Christ. The Holy Spirit witnessed of Christ. There were miracles that witnessed to Christ. There was the Scriptures who witnessed of Christ. There was John the Baptist who witnessed of Christ, and there was the witness of people who were touched, who were miraculously changed by Jesus Christ. 
The thing that we, that we read earlier really instructs us about the ministry of John the Baptist in this witness. Then Jer Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region round the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Jesus, or excuse me, John witnessed of Jesus. Now in John chapter 1, we're going to jump ahead just a minute now to verse 29. Here's how he witnessed of him. Look at this. John, John 1, 29. The next day, John's been carrying on his ministry. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. John carried on his ministry, going about, I mean, it would seem to me, this isn't revealed exactly in the scripture, but it seemed to me that God caused him to be a unique individual, in part, to get attention. Okay? He wore the camel hair, he ate the, lo ate the lowest in honey, he lived in the desert, he didn't drink any wine, which was in the day, of course, they would mix wine with water and help the water to be clean. And he didn't drink any wine at all. And he was a unique individual. And, and you can imagine in that day that people were going, have you seen this John guy? What do you think of this John guy? And people went out and he was preaching this message and, and very many people were baptized by him. And so probably, there were probably a lot of people who thought he was a prophet and and maybe he was you know, going to be something special and it was going to be a new movement of God. And, and in fact, later in the New Testament, you read about people who are continuing to be a, disciples of John even though Jesus has come. And they had to find out that that era was over. But so John gets this following and then here comes Jesus and he goes, Hey everybody, it's time for the second act, the real act. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, this is the guy I've been telling you about. He's so great because he existed before me and he is preferred before me. And so there's the guy. See you later. Now, John didn't so much walk away. But what happened to John was he got arrested and beheaded because he told the truth. He, he basically pointed out the sin of the king. And the king's wife didn't really like that. And it was the, it was the sin between the two of them. And so God, God just pushed John right off the scene because his ministry was done. It was over. John was a great man. He was used greatly of God. But his job is done. As we look at John chapter 1, now we move from the opening act to the main act, the person of Jesus Christ. Again in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to be a witness of the light, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. Now, verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. So we come to the main act. Jesus is the light of the world. The descriptive name of Jesus here is the true light. In John chapter 1, verse 1, what's the name of Jesus? It's the word or the logos of God, the communication of God to us. Here he's called the true light. The word true is unique because it doesn't mean true as opposed to false. It means actually something more like real. He's the real deal. The true light, not the false light. 
And he's the, fault, the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. The word world is the word cosmos. Some of you who are Seinfeld friend, uh, fans, you're thinking of Cosmos Kramer. Well, there's Cosmos goes back before that. And Cosmos comes into our language in the word cosmetic. And it actually means to arrange in some kind of an order. When it's applied to our world, we understand it to be talking about the society, the system in which we live. It's not talking about the earth or the dirt. It's talking about the world of people, the society of people. It said that he was the light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. Listen to these verses from Ephesians. For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then from 1 Peter, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God describes sin as darkness. Think about darkness. In darkness... You can stumble over unseen dangers. I I don't think it's happened much since we've lived here, but when we lived in Tukwila, I used to regularly become sort of half-conscious and see people walking in the room, in in our bedroom when I'm sleeping. I'm kind of going, and I'd sit up and say something, you know, hey, get out of there, or whatever, and my wife's going, no, 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 (laughs) go just back to sleep. In the dark, there are dangers imagined and then there are real dangers you ever stub your toe in the middle of the night you're walking in darkness now you thought you knew where you're going didn't you you thought you knew oh yeah I I walk along here every night about this time you know in the middle of the night there are dark there are unseen dangers and then in the darkness there are real unseen predators People really do get attacked in the dark. That really does happen sometimes. Thankfully, not maybe as much in Ferndale as Seattle. But there are real unseen predators. You can be scared for no reason. And you can be scared for good reason in the dark. In the dark, you can be a person harming others. Taking advantage of their inability to see you in the dark. God describes sin as darkness. You can stumble over unseen dangers. You can be attacked by unseen predators. You can be scared for no reason or good reason in the dark. And then God describes Jesus as the light of the world. What does light do? This is really tricky. Light removes darkness. How much light does it take to light up a room like this? Really very little. A very small amount of light. If this room, if we could make it completely dark, I I would do this. And I would light, say, a lighter or or a single candle. And immediately we would get some idea of what's going on here. A small amount of light dispels the darkness. Of course, Jesus is a large amount of light. Light removes darkness. Light lets you walk carefully. Light lets you walk without fear. Jesus is called the light of the world. Now, how did people respond to him? That's what this little passage really focuses in on. Look at verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was 
in the world, in the society of people, in the cosmos, and the world was made through him, he was the creator, and the world did not know him. There is an ignorant response to Jesus. Jesus came along and the people went, What? Who? Kept on walking. They didn't know him. Now we're going we're to look in a minute here about people who willfully reject, but these people were just ignorant. They did not know him. Why would the world not recognize Jesus as the Savior? It's because of the blinding impact of Satan. The blinding impact of Satan. Now, I want to clarify here, because some of you are newer in in, in our church. I do not believe that Satan or his demons regularly possess, as internally possess, very many people. Okay? And, and what you're going to see here is that's not how he's working. But he does have the ability to blind people. Listen to this. But even if our gospel is veiled, or you know, a veil is something you put over your eyes, you know, blinders or whatever. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, that's a name for Satan, The God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan is actively trying to keep people from believing in the true gospel of Christ. How does Satan blind the world? 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. He's talking about false teachers there. And then he says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. I hope you get a hold of this today because there are some great misconceptions in the world about the work of Satan. Is Satan primarily working through the occult, through witchcraft, through heavy metal rock music? No. Are those things evil? Uh, Yeah. But that is not where his primary work is coming because you, Christian, and even unbelievers can look at the occult or witchcraft or Wicca, as witchcraft is called today, and go, ooh, that's kind of creepy. And they get away from it. Satan is masquerading as an angel of light. Could I say he's wearing a three-piece suit and a nice shirt and tie? He is dressing in ways that people like. Listen to this. Would you rather hear... Now, you're all fine Christian people, so... But you need to imagine unsaved people listening to teaching. Would you rather hear this? You're a sinner bound for hell if you don't accept Christ as your Savior. Or would you rather hear this? You are inherently good. You are born with a, born with a spark of good. And, and you know, you've just been harmed by the people who raised you and the circumstances in which you're raised. In fact, if you were raised in better circumstances, you wouldn't do these things. It's not your fault. You're an inherently good person. Which would you rather hear? Well, you'd rather hear the Bible, and I'm glad for that. But you know what? 
The rest of the world doesn't want to hear it. You talk to people about being a sinner, and do they go, oh yeah, you're right, I, I'm going to hell. Would you please tell me how I can get saved? No. Everybody thinks they're pretty good. I'm, I'm, proper, I'm a pretty good person. And, you know, like I keep the Ten Commandments, or, you know, kind of a majority, you know, kind of a majority of Ten Commandments, you know. Well, I keep a couple of them, you know. Would you rather hear you're a sinner or you're inherently good? Would you rather hear you cannot save yourself? Or would you rather hear you have all that you need within you? You've got the power. Would you rather hear your sin will condemn you to hell if you don't believe in Christ? Or would you rather hear there is no hell? Ah, those darn stupid fundamentalist Christians made that up just to scare you into giving your money. There is no hell. A loving God wouldn't send anybody to hell. Oh, yeah. You know, there are a fair number of, of cult religions who have this strange idea about salvation, but they also have the idea there's no hell. People don't want to hear about punishment if they refuse Christ. Would you rather hear there is a God who expects and demands and deserves your worship? Or would you rather hear you're a God? Well, of course. To an unsaved person, they go, yeah, yeah, I, I knew I was pretty good, you know, and I knew it was all those, you know. These are what the Bible calls doctrines of demons. Every doctrine that is opposed to true Bible doctrine is stuff from Satan that he infuses into the world system and it comes to you as an angel of light. I'm here from the Department of Mental Health and I'm here to help you. And you're glad to see them coming because you're hurting and they will fill your head with the wrong stuff. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so people don't recognize Jesus because they are blinded by all of, by all of this ungodly doctrine. So there is a blinding impact of Satan. There is also the blinding impact of sin. Listen to John 3.19. And, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, talking about Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Sin does have a pleasure to it. The scripture does for a season. And as people invest themselves in sin, they are blinded to the truth of Christ. And they like their sin. I talked to a 15-year-old one time who, who had been in church all of his life, a good Bible-preaching church, and he just accepted the Lord at 15 years old. And I said, why did you wait so long to come to the Lord? And he said, I knew some things in my life would have to change. And he didn't want to let go of his sin. Are you really rejecting Christ because the facts are absent? Are you putting off believing in Christ only because you don't understand what he has claimed to be true? Do you genuinely think Christianity to be a crutch for weak people? Or are you just plain unwilling to give up your sin? Scripture says for some people they're just plain unwilling to give up their sin. Jesus is the light. The light is shining 
And they're saying, I don't see any light. And they're holding their hands over their eyes tight and hard. There is an ignorant response to Jesus. They don't recognize him because of the blinding of Satan and the blinding of sin. And then here in verse 11 of John 1, we read about the incredulous rejection of Jesus. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 21. It's a, a, one of the parables that you, you'll kind of recognize as we start to read it here. Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus basically spells out what we've just read in John 1.11. He, he spells it out in detail. Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. Parable was like a teaching illustration, if you will. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. This guy built a whole farm, the whole operation, and then he leased it out to farmers. Verse 34. Now when the vintage time, the harvest time, grew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. You know, payday. Verse 35. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. In other words, this guy's the owner. If we kill him, we can have it. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? This is Jesus' teaching. Verse 41. Then they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you ever read this scripture? <laughs> the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They got the message. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Jesus said, look, my father planted a farm, and, and the farm is the likeness to the nation of Israel. It goes all, this goes all the way back to their calling out from Abraham and then down into Egypt and, and putting them up in the land and giving them a whole place. He said, he planted this and he said, now give glory to me. And basically they wouldn't do it. And, and some of the prophets were killed, stoned, thrown out, and so on. And so finally at last Jesus sent his very son. And John 1.11 says, He came to His own. 
Not only were these the people who should have been giving him glory, but they were people who were expecting a Messiah. They were the people of God. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They loved the darkness rather than light, so they crucified him. But the good news goes on here in verse 12. But, but, it's a turn now. We're going from one side to the other. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. There is a miraculous reception of Jesus that we learn about here in verses 12 through 13. And the first thing we understand is God's requirement for mankind. And it's this, receive Jesus. But as many as received him. Verse 11 and 12 are drawing this contrast. Here comes the true light into the world. His own people said, no, we don't want you. But there were some people who said, yes, we will take you. We will receive you. What does it mean to receive Jesus. Let's look at an example of this in John chapter 9. <clears throat> Jesus healed the man who was born blind. We've looked at this episode before. Here at the tail end of it, after the man's been healed, he's had the confrontation with the Pharisees. Jesus comes back. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. They, they socially ostracized him by tossing him out of the synagogue. They, he heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Jesus said to the man born blind, and he's been healed, Do you believe in the Son of God? The man answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? This guy is ready for anything. Man, Jesus had just come along and healed him, and, and Jesus could have said, Go jump off a cliff, and he probably would have done it. He said, Man, you, you know, you've healed me. Who is he that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What does it mean to receive Jesus? That's what it means right there. When you hear the truth of God declared that Jesus is the Son of God, he is the second person of the Trinity, as we saw last week. He took on a human body, as we'll learn about next week, and became flesh, and he shed his blood for us so that your sin could be taken away. Your darkness could be pushed aside by the light of God. And he did that for you. Do you receive? Or do you say, no, I like my sin. I like my control of my life. I like right where I'm at. I don't want anything to do with that. God's requirement for relationship is receiving Jesus. Accepting him, taking him in when he presents himself. And then what does he say happens? If you receive him, to them that received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. God's gift to mankind is a powerful relationship. It is to be the child of God. One of the real misconceptions in our world today is that you can earn the favor of God. There are many religions that teach that. You need to do this and do this and do this and do that. And then on that judgment day, God's going to, he's going to look at the good things you've done and your sins and 
If you've done all these right things, then he's going to accept you. You're going to do enough good to be favored by God. It's not true. Look what he says here. To those who received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Let me put it this way. You have no right to try to work your way into heaven. You have no standing before God. There, there is nothing in you in which God would say, Oh, yes, you've done these good works. I must let you into heaven. I must make you my child. No, but if you would receive him, he will make you his child. You can ask him for help. You can expect him to meet your needs. You can live in the character of Jesus. You can carry out God's work in the world. You can bring honor to God. You can give God worship that blesses him. All of those benefits of being a child of God, but you can't do one of them. Nothing unless you will receive the gift of Jesus Christ. If you are rejecting him, then God has nothing to do with you. You are not a child of God by birth. That's what he goes on to tell us here. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name... And then he says this. That he reaches out to us. Look at verse 13. These people who receive Christ are not born of blood or of the will of flesh or the will of man. What, what's he mean, not born of blood? Because elsewhere we, we hear about the blood of Christ. This is talking about human blood. It literally is written in the plural in the scripture. They're not born of bloods. In other words, you cannot be born into God's family by virtue of the fact that your parents were Christians. My parents were Christians. I, I'm very glad for that. But being born in their family did not make me a Christian. Uh, salvation does not come by birth relationship. And then he says salvation does not come by the will of the flesh or by human desire. And it also does not come by the will of man, not a particular human being who can will you into um, God's family. One author put it this way, the new birth is not brought about by descent, by desire, or by human power. Another author was much more colorful when he said regeneration or salvation does not run in the veins. You can't get it from your family. Ephesians 2, 4, 5, and 8 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, we were completely controlled in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace or by a gift you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Jesus presents himself as the Savior. And he says, here, I'm going to give you the gift of salvation. I've died on the cross. I've paid the penalty for sin. I offer myself to you. Will you receive me by faith, by believing in me? Not will you try to earn my favor by doing good things, but will you receive the gift as a grace gift, as a free gift? As I have looked at the, uh, as I have looked at the damage at Hurricane Katrina, one of the things that has struck me, people have talked about being without water, without water. And uh, here, normally we don't know what that means. I, I've got four faucets in my house, which I can put a cup under and drink water out of any time I want. I've got two taps outside that I could drink out of. They wouldn't make me sick. They might not taste that good. 
all the time, water's available. You can walk down the hall that way or down that way, and there's water available. There's water on the table over there. And in the hurricane, the water all becomes polluted. There's water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. We take our, our, our source of water for granted. When we went to Africa, I experienced this. Don't drink the water. Don't brush your teeth with the water. Don't open your mouth when you're showering. There's plenty of water there, but you better not drink it because you're going to pay the price. We take these little blessings for granted. I wonder if sometimes we fail to appreciate the great privilege we have in being a child of God. God reached down and pulled us up. He gave us the faith to believe. And so we have become his children. And I want to encourage you today in two ways. Uh, first of all, in terms of application, I would encourage you to meditate on these two verses that we've just been studying. Maybe even read Ephesians 1 through 2 and just take note of all the things God does for us in salvation. And then if you really want to appreciate what God has done, if you want to not take it for granted, believe in, believe in Christ as your Savior. If you're here today and you've never believed in Christ and He's presented Himself through this scripture... Are you going to be like those who reject him or receive him? If you have believed in Christ, praise God for making you his child. Reflect on that today. God has given me the right to become his child. And I stand in a wonderful place because of that. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the right to become your children. We do not deserve it. We did not earn it. We are no different from any other person on the planet, you gave us the right, and we thank you for that. Help us to appreciate you. Help us to appreciate Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit who empowers us. Father, if there's somebody here who's never put their faith in Christ, may today be the day. May they just quietly receive Jesus. May they let him come in. May they take the gift that he has given them today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.